So my guest today on this Mountain Lion Rounding and Teaching at the Bedside podcast is Dr. Brad Monash, uh, who's from UCSF. Brad, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today. And uh, as you know, I'm most interested in talking with you about your March 2017 publication that was in the Journal of Hospital Medicine called Standardized Attending Rounds to Improve the Patient Experience, a Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial. Um, but, but before we dive in and start talking about that study and other thoughts you may have about bedside rounding and teaching, I was hoping that you could give us a brief synopsis of where you grew up, attended college, med school, residency, and what your uh, current situation and position is at UCSF. Wonderful, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted and honored to be a part of this. Uh, so, as mentioned, my name is Brad Monash. I am from Michigan, born and raised outside of Detroit. I uh, went to University of Michigan uh, undergrad at Go Blue. And then uh, subsequent to that, I went to University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And after Penn, I went to Boston for the Harvard uh, Associated Med Peace Residency Training Program. And so, I spent my time uh, circulating between the Harvard hospitals, uh, learning how to take care of people of all ages. Um, I spent a chief year in pediatrics at the Massachusetts General Hospital for children. And then after that, I looked for a job in hospital medicine, was fortunate to land one uh, out here in San Francisco. So I'm currently at the UCSF. Uh, I have several roles here. Uh, including clinical. I am a hospitalist or inpatient clinician educator in both adult medicine and pediatrics. I have educational leadership uh, roles, including I'm the site director for the internal medicine residence uh, here at Moffitt Long Hospital, and I also uh, help to oversee two medical school courses, including the capstone course for the School of Medicine. Uh, and I have uh, some administrative leadership roles as well, including the uh, associate division chief for the Division of Hospital Medicine at UCSF. Wow, sounds like you, you have a fairly full plate there. Um, I have to say I'm very excited. I just realized as you were introducing yourself that uh, uh, you're our first guest on this podcast who was uh, medicine pediatrics trained. So that's kind of exciting. Okay. Um, and what is your favorite thing to do outside of work activities? Uh, spending time with family. I am married. I have spouse Vicky and uh, two daughters. Addie is eight years old and Revan is four years old. And I love spending time with them. We go hiking and biking and, and camping. So anything with, uh, with the girls uh, makes me happy. Excellent. That's a great age that they're at, too. So. Mm -hmm. So, Brad, can you, uh, again, just to, for our, our listeners, uh, the uh, publication was called Standardized Attending Rounds to Improve the Patient Experience, a Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial, and it was in Journal of Hospital Medicine in March of 2017. Can you talk to me about the background to this study and why you did it? Yeah, and I think some of this dates back to my experience in both medicine and pediatrics. Uh, it's always a striking dichotomy to go from pediatrics where family-centered, patient-centered rounding is essentially the gold standard in practice across the country 
And then we come to medicine where folks spend a lot of time talking about patients in rooms, with card flipping, or in, hall- in, in hallways. And so um, it just it always strikes me uh, going between the two worlds how different they are. And so I've had a long-standing interest in rounding and rounding practices. And so that, that sort of sparked my interest in, in trying to rethink the way we round uh, here on the adult medicine service at UCSF. Excellent. And um, so my understanding is that at least in adult medicine, uh, that prior to the 1960s, probably over 75% of rounds were actually carried out at the patient bedside. Uh, and that this has radically declined over the last four, five, six decades. Um, Brad, why do you think this has occurred? And is it like due to any particular one root cause or is it multifactorial? Ooh, that's the question for the ages. That's a great one. You know, there's, there's so much written about uh, rounds, attending rounds uh, over those last several decades. And I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by rounds, I think. Uh, rounds sort of serve as the pulse of the clinician educator's day. And, you know, it's the opportunity to supervise trainees and to sort of wax poetic on clinical reasoning and also to engage with patients and advance their care. And um, and so, you know, as I think about sort of rounds the ages, I, I, there's a paper that was written by Lynn Forrest in 1980 that, that reflected on what they called clinical entropy. And... Uh, they, they discussed a number of possible reasons why uh, rounds this sort of staple of, of clinical education uh, have migrated away from the bedside. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. The, I know Osler, I think, gets a lot of credit, and, and Osler um, was an incredible uh, clinician educator and leader and talked about the role of the patient uh, being at the center of the educator's universe and that all teaching should occur um, sort of with and from the patient. Um, but it was um, uh, actually back into the, um, I think, 1800s that, uh, that rounds were discussed um, sort of being at the bedside um, in Leiden, uh, Netherlands. It was, um, I think, Silvius was his name, the uh, the person for whom the Cillian Fisher was was named. So, so this this is we've been discussing this for decades, but this this question goes back uh, for um, much longer than that. And what Linforce described, or Linforce described in the 1980 publication uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, was essentially. Um, Mounting concerns for patients' uh, privacy and well-being, um, what they called medical chauvinism, which we might call medical paternalism, in the sense that uh, so we know what's what's best for patients, and the patients are the recipient of our care, uh, as opposed to a, a participant. Uh, the concept of passive views of education that. Um, education is something that we should just be um, teaching to learners as opposed to engaging uh, sort of arm in arm with them. They describe something called the thin ice syndrome. Um, and essentially, that reflects the concept that folks feel vulnerable in the face of uncertainty. Um, and exposing that vulnerability to the patient makes us question our capacities as physicians. There's been an explosion of data that has occurred, and so how do we have time, and how do we review these data at the at the bedside? And 
they, they discussed the lack of interactive skills. I'm not so sure um, about that. However, uh, I, I will say that historically, it seems that is communication has been deemed sort of a softer skill and uh, maybe de-emphasized historically in medical education. Clearly, that's not uh, holding true in, in today, where there's a, a ton of emphasis on, on communication and education. But I, I even think sort of more sort of uh, closer in time to that is the uh, work hour constraints that, that we see uh, from the ACGME, sort of creating increased time pressures in the sense that, um, that bedside rounding takes too much time. Um, I think is probably one of the biggest uh, drivers today in, um, in why rounds have moved from the bedside. And there's been a lot of subsequent studies uh, that have reflected that um, and have reflected many of these uh, original concerns that were raised. Interesting. Um, so you have this um, really unique vantage point of, as you mentioned earlier, in pediatrics, it's very, you know, kind of patient, family-centered at the bedside rounds and not so much in internal medicine. In your opinion, are there any advantages to rounds having moved away to hallways and conference rooms and card flipping as it's referred to in, in your study? Yeah. I will say that when uh, speaking with my colleagues and, and uh, students and residents in pediatrics, we talk a lot about patient and family center rounds and there's this notion that to be patient-centered, you must be at the bedside. And, you know, I'll highlight in my read of the literature is that roughly 15% of folks surveyed actually prefer not to be involved in bedside rounding. And so uh, I think from a patient perspective, uh, there are many people out there who don't want to be talked about uh, in front of them, and maybe they're intimidated or um, threatened, or they just want to hear what the doctors uh, sort of come up with as the plan. So I think the first advantage uh, is for a subset of the population, and I'm estimating about 15% uh, patients would prefer that, and so I think it's respecting the preference of the patient. I, there are populations of patients for whom I think rounding away from the bedside is preferable. I think folks who are uh, altered, uh, suffering from delirium, uh, sometimes having a group of people talking uh, medical speak next to them uh, or just crowds gathering at the bedside uh, can lead to agitation. I would say that at times we address very sensitive topics and folks uh, might not be comfortable with uh, a, a team of physicians and nurses talking about their personal matters um, sort of openly in the room. And so I think maintaining a, a appreciation of of sensitive topics and patient preferences in that respect. And then I think there are times when the patient might be part of the pathology if you have something like Munchausen or um, on another level if you have patients with fictitious disorder. I think there sometimes needs to be uh, advanced planning and uh, really a, a, a focused plan of care on how we are going to uh, address patients uh, regarding these concerns. Similarly for patients uh, with opioid use disorder, if there's concerns that there's inappropriate re requesting of, of opioids. Um, you know, sometimes uh, some coaching of, of, of residents and some uh, discussion about uh, how to optimally engage with patients uh, surrounding these concerns uh, can be best planned prior to being at the bedside. 
Um, similarly, from the learner's perspective, I mean, this is patient's uh, sort of centered perspective. From the learner perspective, um, I think the, there's sort of two advantages that come out uh, from my read of the literature and from our experience locally is that one is that learners feel threatened at the bedside. They feel vulnerable. We discussed this before. And and uh, they are worried about compromising their relationship with patients. Now, that is perception, uh, and that has not borne out with most of what's been written that I've read. Uh, however, that is their that that is their experience, and so I think uh, supporting that is important. And so, one intervention we have in pediatrics is we will ask uh, learners, interns, medical students, to share anything that they are worried or concerned about. If, before we enter the room to give them some protected space uh, to discuss their concerns. Um, and then the other topic that continues to surface is the notion that education suffers at the bedside. And, and I, I, I disagree with this. I think that there uh, is a tremendous amount of education uh, that occurs at the bedside, but a lot of people, when they think about teaching, are thinking about sort of didactic teaching and, again, waxing poetic about differential diagnoses, and, and that discussion uh, is curtailed at the bedside, and so um, there, it, it is important to carve out uh, time and space um, for folks to be able to uh, delve deeper into clinical reasoning topics. So a different type of learning may be going on away from the learn from the patient bedside versus at the patient bedside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bedside is just offers a wealth of opportunities for role modeling, for observation um, in uh, teaching about bedside rounding. Uh, I'll often share examples of folks teaching uh, students how to play an instrument. Um, for example, if you're going to teach a, a learner how to play the violin, you don't sort of send them into the other room and say, play the violin and come back to me. You watch them, you help them hold their fingers in the right place and their bow in the right place, and you guide them through how to do that. I, I don't play violin, <laughs> uh, but, but what I am doing is coaching and uh, trainees on becoming doctors and doctoring. And, and how am I going to do that well if I don't observe their ability to communicate complex medical information uh, to the patient. How do I uh, coach folks on doctoring if I don't see how they can uh, console a patient who is um, suffering? Um, if I don't witness their compassion, how they reach out and hold the patient's hand. And so, you know, so much of teaching as a clinician, as an inpatient clinician educator for me is really the art of observation, of diagnosing the learner, what are their strengths, uh, where are their uh, opportunistic areas for uh, improvement. And so, so much of that I glean from just watching them at the patient's bedside and then at times role modeling uh, how to navigate some of the rougher waters. I love that uh, violin playing analogy. I, I, I believe I will use that in the future. Um, so can you pre, uh, briefly describe uh, what you looked at in this study and how you carried the study out? Absolutely. So uh, so prior to this study, we did uh, a, another study back in 2014 to 2015 led by Dr. Nader Najafi, uh, where we really asked the question, 
sort of what are rounding best practices. And there's been a lot in the literature, but we wanted to know locally what did our interprofessional care team uh, consider to be best practices in rounds. And we uh, led focus groups and did some uh, iterative analyses uh, with attending physicians, with medical students, with residents, with nurses, and with pharmacists to really come up with a list of what are the best practices for rounds. And, and that, led, that laid the groundwork for our intervention uh, for this study, um, which, which really was coming up with a list of standardized best practice rounds. And that included a pre-rounds huddle, so having the team gather before rounds to really come up with a game plan, goals for rounds, the order of rounds, and so everyone was on the same page. Uh, rounding at the bedside, which has been the meat of our discussion. Uh, engaging the nurses in rounds, which was not standard practice uh, at UCSF prior to this intervention. Uh, Real-time order entry, and so accomplishing and moving care forward uh, in front, uh, in real time during, uh, in front of the patient and doing some reading aloud of the orders being entered. And then use of the bedside whiteboard. Um, and so that was deemed to be sort of some of the best practices around uh, from this interprofessional uh, sort of stakeholder group. And so what we did for this study is we divided the medicine service into two arms. We had an intervention arm and a control arm. And our teaching service is comprised of eight teams. So four teams were allocated to the intervention and four teams were allocated to the control. And we essentially determined the intervention uh, arm based on a coin toss, the uh, famous coin toss that was photographed. And the, the pragmatic nature of this is that each night, two teams are paired with each other to be on overnight call. And so we have a, a Q4 or every four night uh, call structure. And so we essentially took four teams and four teams and, and we divided them into a, a intervention and control arms based on the call schedules. And so the intervention team uh, received a one and a half hour workshop uh, about sort of rounding, bedside rounds and rounding best practices. They received written material, uh, including a pamphlet uh, that outlined these best practices. And then they received uh, some uh, audit and observation and some feedback as well. Uh, the control arm uh, essentially was usual practice without any intervention. We let them know that we were just going to be observing rounds because there were uh, pre-medical student observers on rounds. And so for those of folks listening around the country, uh, we reached out to a local uh, undergraduate university um, and were able to recruit 30 pre-med uh, student observers, which was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, so this was beneficial for us, and they also were able to use this for their uh, resumes and applying for, for medical school, so pre-med undergraduate observers. And so the control group just followed standard practice. At UCSF, there's a big emphasis on resident autonomy. And so essentially, uh, we said, just round as you will, and we're just going to be watching you. And so we had these observers follow rounds. Uh, they used a standardized checklist with rubrics, uh, marking off which of the uh, five best practices were followed. And uh, subsequent to that, or excuse me, at the same, by the, at the same time, 
they kept track of time uh, with each bedside encounter and the time of rounds overall. Uh, subsequent to rounds, they circled back and interviewed the patients about their experience with rounds and their experiences with the medical team. Uh, at the end of each month, we also sent out uh, surveys to uh, the students and residents, to attendings, and we also uh, sent out surveys to our nursing colleagues as well. And I um, had a question about the, the 90 minutes of uh, orientation or um, sort of uh, prep that you did with the teams. Did that include the learners or just the faculty that um, was sort of discussed how to, how, to, how to do the bedside rounds? It included faculty and the learners. Oh, I see. Okay. And was, did you think 90 minutes was enough? I mean, because it seems like in a culture where that may not have been part of things prior to that, um, it might require more time than that. I completely agree. I think the 90 minutes was helpful, and if we look at fidelity to the rounding intervention, uh, it was it was significantly improved from the control. And you know, pre-round huddle, um, we had a pro- approximately 80% adherence to that versus 44%. Um, rounding at the bedside happened about half the time, uh, as opposed to 5% of the time in the control group. The nurses joined 60% versus 25%. Uh, uh, in the control group. Real-time order entry, again, happened about 50% of the time versus only 20% of the time uh, in the control group. And then use of the whiteboard uh, doubled uh, in the control in the intervention group, but it was only at 30%. So we, we did achieve uh, some fidelity with this, but I, I do envision if we had a more robust intervention uh, from the training perspective, um, these numbers uh, would have been higher, and and we may have seen a, a differential experience uh, of the physicians involved. And so, what were the highlights of the findings in this study? And I guess starting with your your primary outcome, which I understand was um, patient satisfaction with um, bedside attending rounds. Yeah, so I think the highlights are sort of uh, multifold from the patient perspective. Uh, we did find that the patients were more satisfied with rounds uh, when, when they were uh, sort of allocated to the intervention arm. And that didn't surprise us. That was our sort of a priori hypothesis that the patients prefer this, and the literature shows that. We, we asked a host of, uh, of questions that we, identified, that we identified prior to the study, and we also found it interesting that patients in the intervention arm really felt more cared for by their medical team. And so uh, when we are engaging patients more in their care, um, that has ripple effects beyond just satisfaction with rounds, but patients felt more, more cared about. Um, the uh, attending satisfaction was high across uh, both arms um, and uh, trended towards increased satisfaction uh, in the intervention arm, but that did not achieve significance. It was interesting that the residents uh, with statistical significance were dissatisfied with the intervention. Uh, that also is consistent with uh, what many studies have, have shown. And in, in our case, I think part of it was our control arm was usual practice, which is resident preference. And so it sort of didn't surprise us the residents doing what they want to do without being told what to do uh, were more satisfied because they were in control. Uh, but some of the themes 
that we've appreciated that we discussed briefly earlier um, did surface, and there was concerns about uh, infringing on their autonomy, uh, and there was concerns about the time that it took to round at the bedside, um, which stands out as, I think, a third takeaway from this study was that the perception of time uh, rounding was substantially longer in the intervention arm. So in the intervention arm, the residents thought that rounds lasted about 167 minutes versus uh, they estimated that they took about 152 minutes in the control arm. And that contrasts with the actual, the, the converse and that rounds in the intervention arm were actually shorter. So the bedside uh, best practice intervention was time saving. And so uh, rounds of the intervention arm lasted about 143 minutes versus 151 minutes in the control. So we saved uh, eight minutes uh, on average uh, in rounds. And there's been discrepancies that I've read in the literature with some interventions looking like they take more time and some looking like they, they, say, uh, they save time. And we were uh, thrilled to see that in our study, the intervention was actually time saving. And the average amount of time saved was approximately four minutes uh, uh, per, per rounding encounter. That is absolutely fascinating <laughs> that the perception would be so much different than the reality. Um, and of course, you had the uh, pre-med students going around timing it, so it was presumably fairly accurate. Um, uh, and, and time is just so elusive. I mean, there's those studies showing about patient perception of you know, physician time spent at the bedside if they sit down. And I know there, the original studies show that patients thought that physicians spent more time at the bedside if they sat down. And that was recently called into question in another study. But it just shows this sort of elusive nature of perception and time perception. And um, we, we have seen that card flipping where uh, that residents perceive to be the most time efficient where we sit in a conference room and talk about patients uh, it often takes a lot more time, and it's probably driven by sort of uh, tangents that, that we get on as uh, we sort of go down the diagnostic and uh, um, management rabbit holes um, that we, are, we don't go down when we are uh, at the bedside when we're much more focused. That, that is really interesting. Um, so what was the total percent of attending rounds time uh, spent at the bedside in, in the control arm and in the intervention arm? So the total percent of attending rounds time in the control arm was only about 5%. And that was versus 54% in the intervention arm. Huh. And so that 5% is presumably what had been happening before you did this study. That is correct. And, you know, some of this is semantics and some of the challenges when perusing the uh, bedside rounding literature is that people define bedside rounds differently. And so for us to qualify as bedside rounds, the presentation uh, and the plan needed to be discussed in front of the patient. Uh, if the presentation and the plan were not discussed in front of the patient, um, but were discussed in the hallway and then the team went in as a group, we consider that hallway round. And so hallway rounds is uh, the staple of, of rounds at UCSF. Um, but it, it's not surprising to me that, that those rounds last longer because you end up 
duplicating uh, discussion of a lot of the clinical information. We talk at length uh, about the di di uh, diagnosis and, and plan um, outside the room, and then we repeat that in, in front of the patient. And to quote Jeff Weave, uh, he says, we deprive patients of the intellectual capital that we are sharing outside the room. We will spend, you know, 10 minutes uh, discussing the pros and cons of getting a transthoracic echo, and then we will decide, for example, not to do the echo, and then the patient will just learn that we're not doing an echo without sort of being privy to all the discussion that went into that decision. Hmm. So when when the hallway rounds were being done on the intervention arm, you, the, the time that was then spent after the team went in to see the patient was still counted in terms of being at the, the percent at the bedside, though, right? That was counted as uh, time being at the bedside, but that was not counted as percent time in bedside rounds. Okay, got it. Um, so, uh, so it sounds like the trainees were dissatisfied um, with the intervention arm. Did this include the students and the residents? It did. We had a relatively uh, small number of students, and so we did not separate them for the purpose of these analyses. We we did group the students uh, and the residents together, and so that is a study limitation, recognizing that uh, there are different needs of students. Um, similarly, uh, we know that there are sort of different values and preferences of first-year residents versus second- and third-year residents. But for the purpose of this study, we, saw we, we, we grouped all of the learners together. Okay. So, because it's interesting, I, I gather from the literature, from my own reading, that it's somewhat controversial what students think of um, patient-side rounding, whether it's in the outpatient setting or the inpatient setting. Um, so your sense is that they were not satisfied overall, though it was a small number of students. Yeah, that is correct. When Students are presenting their own patients. They are um, often intimidated by needing to sort of perform uh, not only in front of the team but in front of the patient as well. And so uh, when a student is grappling with clinical uncertainty or trying to figure out what the next best step is, uh, discussing that in front of the patient is, uh, is also challenging for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess one of my questions I have for you, Brad, and I have no easy answers about how you would actually measure these inefficiencies, but did you ever, guys ever talk about the other inefficiencies in, um, is, for example, in the control group in terms of, like when you're bedside rounding in front of a patient and say the patient's wife is there, the patient's listening to your discussion, the presentation, the plan, and they have a chance to ask a couple of questions, it seems like that's fairly efficient in communication because then the nurse, if she's at the bed, he or she is at the bedside, knows what's going on for the day and why. Um, same with the patient, but in a situation where it's the attending going off and seeing the patient after they've done conference room rounds or hallway rounds, um, it seems like there's calls that are going to be generated from the nurse to the house staff to come back and talk with the patient or the wife, um, maybe sometimes even those two parties separately. Um, the nurse is needing an update potentially on what's going on. And then there's the attending who's seeing the patient having their circle back with the team to 
go over, you know, maybe they don't agree with um, the assessment that was given in the conference room while the card flipping was happening. And they want to sort of have more input and say, hey, you know, I found this murmur on this patient and I think it's an innocent murmur, but, you know, should we get an echo? Something like that. Um, did you guys talk at all about trying to get a handle on those inefficiencies in conference room and hallway rounds? a great perception and uh, I, I love I love all of these intricacies of communication and rounding and inefficiencies and we didn't delve for the purpose of this intervention delve too much into that uh, but it's definitely something that I think about a lot and um, when when we round for example uh, as a team just thinking about disruptions during rounds we will often uh, designate sort of the non-presenting uh, learner as someone who can break off and get recommendations from nurses and allow rounds to move on. Um, you know, it wasn't long ago, I mean, ten, less than 10 years ago, uh, attending rounds uh, were a separate entity at UCSF. And we have migrated to a system where um, rounds are primarily discussed uh, with the attending present. Uh, to address these inefficiencies. And so residents aren't double rounding, the attending isn't seeing patients separately and then needing to call back and, and change the plan later. Um, but there's a lot of questions that have come into play recently about uh, resident uh, learner autonomy and whether or not the pendulum needs to swing in the other direction. But for now, the way we primarily round is that the attendings meet up with the team in the morning and round on the patients together. Interestingly, I've spoken with uh, colleagues at Virginia Mason where they um, ascribe to the lean uh, management system or Toyota production system, but they've integrated lean into their rounding practices where they will round in flow. And so what we find is efficient for one person on the team uh, may absolutely not translate into what is most efficient for the team as a whole and for the health system. And so at Virginia Mason, they will round on a patient and take care of all the patient's needs and orders and address their questions. And if they need to be discharged, discharge them and then move on to the next patient. And it was, uh, they have found that this concept of rounding and flow is the most efficient way uh, for the system to function. Uh, but when I discuss rounding uh, up until 3 to 4 p.m. Uh, with members of, uh, of, of, our, of our house staff, um, it definitely, that gives them heartburn. <laughs> I'll bet. I think it would give a lot of house staff heartburn. Um, <laughs> one of the things I was struck by in the study, Brad, and this is really kind of honing in on the, the table that had the survey results of uh, patients, uh, trainees, and attendings, was it, I was struck um, by both trainee and attending perspectives that they weren't completely comfortable talking about a patient's medical issues in front of patients with the team present. Um, and I was wondering what your perspective on that is, because it, it seems a bit ironic that we, we spend a lot of our time as physicians discussing a patient's health situation and so forth. But what is your insight about that? Um, we're supposed to be great communicators as physicians, right? Yeah. You know, I think that there's the inside part of this question, and then there's the outside part of this question. And uh, one of my uh, 
mentors and friends, uh, Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal, um, teaches uh, a course, the capstone course called CODA that I, I help to oversee here at UCSF. And uh, he gives a talk on teaching as a, as a resident. And uh, he makes the class um, repeat what he deems to be the three most important words that any physician can utter. I don't know. And he makes the class repeat this in unison. I don't know. Because there is this sense of losing confidence or I need to always know the answers and being vulnerable in front of learners, being vulnerable in front of patients um, is like this this evil that people sense. And, and I think embracing uncertainty uh, is, is a crucial part of our roles and, and coaching resilience and coaching learners how to embrace uncertainty, I think is, is really crucial. And it's, you know, it's, if you don't know the answer, you can still instill confidence in the patient, in the patient that you will get the right answer, whether that's looking something up or involving a, a, an expert consultant. Um, and so there is this inside concern about expressing uncertainty, but then there's this outside sense of this will, you know, sort of shatter my image as the all-knowing uh, physician in the eyes of the learners and or the, uh, the patients. And, of course, from the learner's perspective, um, they are trying to develop this relationship with, with patients, and they're worried about how they are perceived with the attending at the bedside, and is the patient going to think less of them? The literature says, no, that won't happen, but there's still this concern about that, and there's this sense of, of this, the need to perform, and that it's a performance at the bedside, and the more uh, observers you have, sort of, the, more in, the greater the intimidation factor uh, regarding that performance. Interesting. Um, so, I, so I have the million-dollar question for you here, Brad. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a million dollars, but at least <laughs> 25 cents question. So, um, so prior to starting this study, uh, you know, 5% or so of attending rounds was spent at the bedside. And uh, in the control arm, it was 5%, um, which so were sort of basic, basic the, this premise is that 5% before and 5% control during the study. Now that you've done this very nice study um, showing that attendings liked both models the same, that patients were more satisfied and felt better cared for in the intervention arm, but that the residents and probably the students um, were not satisfied with it and maybe felt like some autonomy was lost, what percentage of uh, rounding on the internal medicine service there now would you say is done at the bedside. Got it. And so this will be just between me and you, right? Um, oh, well, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have to delete that out of the conversation. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The, uh, there, there hasn't been a drastic change. We, uh, we have not followed up this study with um, a huge push to continue bedside rounding. Now, let me clarify that uh, hallway rounds remain sort of the staple of rounding and so there is a lot of patient engagement and patient interaction that is occurring during rounds uh, but the presentations at the bedside uh, are, are, are not the, the common way that this is done. I would say that uh, after reading the study a, a number of people uh, are believers and have adapted this and this is definitely sort of provider uh, driven 
there are folks who uh, who are just believers in bedside rounding. We have uh, attendings who really push for this, and we have residents who push for this. Um, but I would not say that it is the predominant way that rounds are run. In fact, it is the, probably the minority, although uh, I would say that we see less and less uh, card flipping where there's no engagement of patients at all in the rounding process. Um, one of the things we didn't discuss uh, that was an outcome of this study was the popularity of nursing engagement. And so um, the, there was, it was uniformly popular to involve nurses in rounds. In fact, uh, I was uh, on a control team um, when this was rolled out um, and so my team had to be dis disqualified uh, because of my engagement with the study. But the the nurse uh, from our team joined our very first day on round and um, was asking about the, the order for lorazepam um, because the the patient uh, had refractory nausea and the um, the patient wasn't getting lorazepam. So the resident expressed, well, why, why didn't we give lorazepam? That was the third line agent. And the nurse said, oh, I thought that that was for anxiety. And so there was this clarification on the very first patient that we rounded on with the nurse at the bedside, clarifying that the lorazepam was the third line agent for, uh, for intractable nausea. And so the engagement of nurses was a huge part of this. And uh, we are planning for a, a version 2.0. I think the two areas on which we're going to focus are, one, uh, the development piece of this. So you highlighted this right away and that, you know, 90-minute workshop is not really uh, enough. And so we need to establish some pretty robust faculty development uh, initiatives and coaching on how to do this well because um, when, this, when these go well, people become believers. And uh, after being on a month with a resident who was initially uh, reticent to try this, uh, almost without fail, that resident uh, becomes a bedside rounding enthusiast after giving it a shot. But it's not easy. And there are skills and there are challenges and obstacles that we need to learn how to overcome and, and navigate at the bedside. And so I think the, the next round will in, involve uh, more faculty development uh, in order to coach people on how to lead these rounds. And the second aspect, which is a little more technical, is having uh, communication devices that facilitate uh, coordination with nurses. Right now, we still are on an old pager model. We have uh, outdated uh, Spectralink phones that are constantly um, uh, disconnecting and malfunctioning. And so uh, our next round, we're really looking to expand our telecommunication platform so that we can coordinate much more closely with our nursing colleagues uh, to, to get everyone at the bedside. We are not geographically uh, localized, which is a, a significant barrier here. We are often rounding on multiple different units. We also have an open ICU model where we are also rounding in the, in the intensive care unit. And so we have a number of structural challenges here uh, that we need to overcome for version 2.0. Yeah, I think they use something called Vocera uh, here at UC Davis. Medical center, which I have no idea how that works, but the nurses always seem to be talking to each other um, through these little devices they wear on their lapel. So maybe that would be a good way to go for you guys. Um, Absolutely, I know we're in discussion with a, uh, a similar company, um, a competitor, uh, but we're in the process of, of potentially rolling that out in the upcoming months. Yeah, and I, I have I should uh, add I have no financial interest in this. Uh, <laughs> Um, 
And I guess one other question about the the hallway rounds, or maybe it's a comment. Um, In my reading of the literature, uh, that seems to be the mode that patients don't like the most, Um, at least in a couple of studies I've looked at, like in the New England Journal and such. And I I guess primarily for privacy concerns. Um, Does this come up at all there? Absolutely. And I it's funny that I, I, I struggle with hallway rounds for this reason. Patients don't like it. Um, you know, patients don't like hearing their medical information being shared in a hallway uh, where other people are walking. And so uh, there are absolute privacy concerns. Um, but then the, uh, the remedy to that, which is when I personally cringe, is when folks will reach over and close the door so that then they can talk about the patient in the hallway. And so I, I think it's highly problematic, um, not only from the efficiency standpoint that we discussed, but from a patient privacy standpoint. And so I, I really uh, hope to see us moving a- away from this being the primary mode of, of rounding. Mm-hmm. So, um, Brad, we're kind of running up against the hour here, uh, and I have uh, always I'm promising to try and keep these podcasts to 30 minutes, but it never seems to work out that way because I have so much fun talking to people and hearing about what they're doing. But um, any take-home points for our our listeners? Absolutely. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Paul, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. I, You know, it, I, I think interventions are possible. I mean, this was a med-ed slash QI intervention, and uh, we rolled this out as a bundled intervention, and so we did not look at the individual uh, components, but we said that this was a best practice round, and we achieved uh, pretty good fidelity to the intervention given the low intensity of the uh, of the training. I mean, a one a 90-minute uh, uh, session um, is doable, uh, you know, across across hospitals, across health systems. And so, you know, we really were hoping to to implement something that we thought could be readily adaptable um, and, and rolled out across institutions. And so, you know, the first thing I would say is that just, you know, if you're planning on an intervention, just do it. Um, this was uh, not funded. Um, this was sort of uh, the, the, the love uh, and passion of myself and uh, Nadar Jaffe and James Harrison, a PhD researcher, and, and several other study investigators. And we really did this without a budget. Um, and, uh, and it was a ton of, ton of, ton of fun. And so um, I think that's great. Um, and then from the rounding standpoint, if folks are interested in collaborating, we're always looking to do more and to push the boundaries. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I really feel like rounds are sort of the pulse of the uh, sort of inpatient teaching uh, milieu, and it, it's what keeps so many of us going. It, it combines the ability to teach, the ability to coach, the ability to engage with patients and to role model, and so uh, I, I really look forward to further work in this realm. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. This has really been a pleasure to talk to you and, and get your perspective on this very nice publication that I greatly enjoyed reading. And uh, I wish you luck with all your endeavors there. Uh, thanks so much. This was a ton of fun, and I really appreciate you uh, extending this invitation to me. All right, Brad. Talk to you soon.